Father, this is a, a moment for the heart. I hope that today your word will speak to the heart. Father, as a minister, I can put pressure on the heart and it will be of no use. It will last a little while, but really there will be no real change. And so, Father, I pray that you will help me. My words are feeble. My abilities are unable to, to match the task. Father, I love you and thank you for your faithfulness to the word. And we come to you uh, with expectant hearts. Bring us not just more information, but give us more affection for the one who came for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the title of the sermon is called Relief for the heart, relief for the heart. And so I hope that will guide that main word relief. Um, I want you to know there is a good work that's begun in you. Something amazing has begun in you. I look out here and I've heard many of you here. I've heard your profession of faith. You have professed Jesus as your king. That's a remarkable thing. A person can't do that, by the way, except by the Holy Spirit. And so there's something remarkable in you already underway, and I want you to know that. I want you to know that with real clarity. Uh, the Christian faith is not about some nice ideas to make you a better person. I want to make that clear. Not about some nice ideas to make you a better person. Uh, I'm not here to to sort of make you convinced of a particular behavior in your life. Uh, I'm here like a waiter uh, among hungry people. Waiters don't really have that great of a job. They don't have that important of a job. They don't have to create hunger. They just are there and the menu has already done its work, right? Sometimes you've seen pictures, if that helps, or a description of the food. Oh, and if you know what's being described, and that connects with your hunger, right? So I'm a waiter. That's all I am. A waiter does not make you order food. <laughs> uh, one time, though, I did uh, at this uh, pancake house down here. One time I did have the, the old, old grandma. Uh, she was, she was wanted to sell an omelet to me. Um, and what's the, famous, uh, what's the famous pancake place in, in Kailua here? The, what is it? No, the... Uh, it's, the one there, yeah, Boots and Chemos, right. It's so packed. I haven't been there in like 15 years, so seriously. But Boots and Chemos, so I was there, and I wanted the, the macadamia nut pancakes. And this elderly lady, she was like, oh, the grandma, she said, oh, I want the omelet. I looked at I said, nah, nah, I'll go with the macadamia pancakes. The omelet, the omelet. And she started to try to sell me on the omelet. Must have had dozens and dozens of eggs to get rid of. <clears throat> So I have had a, a, a waiter or a waitress try and sell me. A salesperson uh, uh, trying to help you buy a car. If you're already convinced of the kind of car you want and you have found it, the salesperson doesn't really have much of a job. Augustine said, if we but turn to God, Augustine in the 4th fourth, fourth century said, if we but turn to God, <clears throat> that itself is a gift from God. So uh, I want relief for you today. I want you to relief, the re relief to come that would be you find your Savior 
rich, loving, merciful in these texts. Now, the text I want to look at is verse 13, and I want to look at verse 14 and verse 15. As I mentioned, these really are, um, uh, boy, this whole section is just, uh, when we leave this section, I will be sorrowful because there's so much here. I want you to know how very real these subjects are to Paul, and I want them to become very real to you. There's a very real love in verse 13, uh, it, and I describe it in your outline as a very real, quote, not giving up on you, beside myself, crazy love, and it accompanies anyone who's aligned with the gospel. I just want to talk about that very real kind of crazy love that Paul exhibits in verse 13. And then there's a very real compulsion in verse 14. The love of God controls us, verse 14. Ah, if you've found that verse before in Scripture, that's uh, that's rich. And then thirdly, in verse 15, there's a very real hound of heaven who's drawing you out. Let's see if we can find these things here. The Corinthians, as a group, are under the influence of of, uh, of leaders. They, they may have arisen inside the group. They may have come from outside of Corinth. They are uh, boasting in their credentials. Uh, they are uh, perhaps uh, glorying in their achievements. They have some eloquence and ability to speak. The Apostle Paul has admitted in a couple different places he's not quite that eloquent. He's not, his speech is not uh, impressive. And so the Apostle Paul is uh, interacting with them because what they are doing is that these super apostles, he calls them later in Second Corinthians, uh, and they're phonies in Paul's uh, mind, and that's true. Uh, Paul uh, sees that them focusing on the, on the outward and not the heart, on what's impressive and not on, on the heart. And so Paul presents his own evidence for why the Corinthians should hang with him, okay? Now, it's not about him, but it's the, it's the apostolic office. Meaning, as you watch carefully what Paul's doing, he's saying you've got a real breathing, not hopefully not fire breathing, uh, but a real breathing, live apostle who has planted your church, has planted the church. You know me, and you know my fatherly care for you, and it's unlike any other kind of care you're going to get. And so his, he's, he's not boasting in himself, but the apostolic role that he play, plays. Now, when Paul mentions outward appearance, what he does boast in is, well, weakness. My body is falling apart. Uh, he mentions things of outward appearance, and then he sort of... Um, doesn't really say things that are all that impressive. In fact, he says, really, I'm kind of wasting away. And so he says, essentially, uh, what we really do is we drive everything through our hearts, in the heart, for your heart. And Paul has had unique, perhaps ecstatic experiences with uh, with God, with Christ. Uh, there are... A number of times when he's had a vision, he's heard a voice, he's had an ecstatic experience. And uh, in verse 13, um, 
Apparently, this is in some, in some way, this has been a, become a criticism of Paul. And so look at the very beginning of verse 13. It's kind of hard to understand what he means by this. For if we are besides ourselves, see the verse 13? If we are besides ourselves, it is for God. And if we are of sound mind, it is for you. Notice that phrase. Now, Paul writes in dense, a dense style. Um, sometimes when we look at our Bible, it does require Bible study. <laughs> and you have some of these things are more difficult to understand. So we have to take our time. Dense style. What does he mean? Boy, we're kind of out of our mind, but we're of sound mind to you. So we have these two contrasting ideas, right? Well, most likely what he is meaning is that there is an accusation that while Paul has had unique experiences, direct, unmediated experiences with the risen Christ, um, there's a there's a criticism that says, you know, this guy really has kind of lost his senses. <clears throat> At times, he sort of lost himself. He has, uh, he's not reliable. And so Paul concludes, he says, well, if I've lost my senses, <clears throat> well, it's for God. So let's just put that aside, all right? What I want you to do is I want you to evaluate me based upon my sound reasoning, all right? The last thing the Corinthians need is just someone with an ecstatic experience that's somehow supposed to prove that they are worthy of following so Paul says, well, I acknowledge myself to be mad, but that's between myself and God, <laughs> okay, if you can accept that. What remains an undeniable fact is this, you've got my arguments and my well-thought-out reasoning. Now, for very experiential people, and I think that would be true of the Corinthians, they gauge things by experience, what they need is reason, right? They need rational arguments. And for those who of, of us in the Reformed Presbyterian Church who love reason and love logic and love all these things and propositionalizing truth, 60% uh, of the Bible is poetry, so we don't preach on that stuff. <clears throat> so what we need, though, is perhaps a little more. Uh, we need those of you who... who Walk with the Spirit and give us a little experience once in a while. All right? Actually said it. There you go. Okay. So what Paul's essentially saying is, all right, you've got me. Yep, there are things that I can't explain in my life. They're not immoral. They're not indecent. Now, let's put that aside. What you've got is my love for you. And my love for you is this crazy, I'm not going to give up on you kind of love. And it looks like reasoned arguments. So reason is not opposed to Christianity. Reason is not contrary to the Christian faith. What they need is they need good reasons to listen to the Apostle Paul. They need good reasons. And there's a very real love that flows from alignment with the gospel. The gospel is moving in you by the Spirit of God in order to serve other people. So, the Apostle Paul has a way of ministering to the Corinthians. He's thinking about these Greeks, converted Greeks. What's important to them? What do they need? What do they need? And then the Ephesians need something else, and the Thessalonians need something else. Not a different gospel, but a gospel tailor-made to their needs. That's love. 
That's love embodied. So, as you interact with non-Christians, and as you interact with Christians, you want to think, what is it that they need? They need some patience here. They need some fatherly love here. They need a reasoned argument. They need love in a different way, a way that they can understand. Now, secondly, so there's that verse. I hope I explained that verse well. And what that verse really is, is further explanation about what's going on in Paul and why does he stay with these Corinthians and what's motivating him. And as I have confessed, the more I learned about the Corinthians, I would have said, well, it's easier to work with the Thessalonians and the Ephesians. I got plenty of work over here. And you guys, well, good luck with your super apostles. That's probably me, and that's in my flesh, by the way. So, secondly, there's a very real compulsion that seeks the good of others. And that's in verse 14. And verse 14 is just so rich. Take a look at it there. For the love of Christ. Now, this is, now what he's doing is he's explaining. Whenever Paul uses the word for, he's giving reasons for what's going on in his heart. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this. Now, this is beautiful. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, I'll explain that. Again, just one of the top 20 verses in the New Testament. Now, what is a compulsion? I'm describing this as a compulsion. It's an irresistible desire. A compulsion is something that gets a grip on you and it just controls you. Well, we may not quite feel comfortable with that language. Well, this is what Paul's describing. He's describing that I am constrained. Means I'm not just let loose. It's not, in a sense, we think of words positively or negatively. It's not so much in a positive way, saying, you know what, I'm free to kind of do everything and anything. It's more, I'm constrained, brought in to a way of living. I'm constrained, not by chains, not by shoulds, not by ought, not by law. I'm constrained by the love of Christ. This controls me. This animates me. That's an interesting, interesting idea. And then he comes up with this conclusion. When he thinks about the love of Christ, it's not some vague thing. Some sort of generic thing. Oh yes, Jesus loves and sort of floats in the air. He talks about the death of Christ. Look at the conclusion of verse 14. Or at least up to this point. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And so Paul has reflected deeply on the death of Christ, and this is the epicenter of the love of God. There are not a few Christians who are still looking for evidence of God's love for them. Not a few. They are putting out the tea leaves. They are putting out the fleeces. They're trying, if this circumstance works out. If this happens, I will know God loves me. They live in a great insecurity. Paul is reflecting on the epicenter of God's love for us. This is called us. The epicenter of God's love. God's love will not get any bigger in your life than what's already happened at the cross. And this produces a compulsion in Paul. 
he sees a particular reason for the death of Jesus. It was a substitutionary death. Not a popular idea among modern religious people. People have departed from the faith over this idea. And you may have come across this in certain circles. They call this cosmic child abuse. That God was the Father inflicting wrath upon the Son. And these who are sophisticated and come up with this, this can't be. How can there be a God of wrath? How can we be saved from wrath? And so it's the idea that, well, I have no idea what they think is going on on the cross, but the one thing that these who teach this would say that that can't be. That's just cosmic child abuse. Well, this doctrine of substitutionary atonement has really been attacked over the centuries. First of all, Jesus wasn't a child. He was 33 years old. And he said on a number of occasions that he was willingly and freely giving himself. So he was not sort of dragged into something or something was made to happen upon him that was shocking and unexpected. The compulsion that Paul feels as he realizes more deeply that the mercy of God brought Christ as a substitute for him. And this constrains Paul. This grips his heart. This moves him into darkness. This moves him into Corinth. A radical cross-cultural experience for a Jewish man to go into this non-Jewish Gentile territory. He's moving, compelled by the love of God. This is a substitutionary atonement for others. It's interesting that in Acts 18, he received the voice of Christ from heaven assuring him in Acts 18, he's in Corinth and he thinks he's going to die. And the voice of Christ says, hang in there, Paul. I have many in this city. This love controls Paul. Husbands and wives, does the love you have for your spouse constrain you? I hope it does. Is it a desire to be focused with boundaries to that love? Yes. You are constrained. You, you love those boundaries. It's, it's good to have the, that focused love. And it's a constraining love. And for us, our hearts are to be constrained by this love. Preaching law, preaching duty, preaching responsibility can never produce this constraint of the heart. And so Paul demonstrates to these Corinthians what is in his heart. The word means to hold together, to enclose, to hold fast, or to constrain. The New English Bible, uh, popular back in the 70s, it says, it says this, that this love of Christ leaves us no choice. How about that? Mm, that, might, that might be really, really close. This, Christ, this Christ's self-sacrificing love restrains Paul from self-seeking. 
and then he he concludes. He says that one died, therefore all died. And something remarkable has happened in the death of Jesus. Something significant for for a people. Christ secures this something for others. He secures freedom from the law. He secures freedom from shame. Secures freedom from guilt. Do you have in your mind that Jesus is a moral example? There's no compelling love there. Do you have in your mind the, the Christian life is where you're just getting better? There's no just improving your life. You're not, there's no compelling love there. Or do you have in your mind the justice of a holy God placing you under the sentence of wrath with no hope and that you are deserving of this? Do you sense that? Do you feel it? Has the law and its perfect commands to be perfect, has it gripped you? Does it grip you? This idea that God's wrath must be satisfied is abhorrent to the modern mind. Moderns, modern Western people, they believe in the Enlightenment and the idea that, well, what we are is we're, we're, we're freed from these superstitious ideas. And now, by just natural laws and things we've discovered in nature and just sheer willpower, progress is going to happen, good things are going to happen. And there's a complete denial of the, of the biblical vision of man's condition. What is my need? My need is for a bloody, discarded, crucified Savior found on the town garbage heap. Do you see that there is a second Adam for you? The first Adam has brought his whole family into ruin, and the second Adam has brought life to his new family. Americans have been long restless with the idea of Christ as he is presented in the Scriptures really restless. Jesus as businessman, Jesus as macho man, let's get men together and swing axes. He died for, he died for people. And God is pleased to offer this one for you. He doesn't just offer a service. He doesn't just offer some help. He offers a radical substitutionary death for you. He died for me. What's Paul saying to the Corinthians? This love is the very compelling love of him as an apostle. This is why he does what he does. Do you sense and feel Christ's love in the New English Bible leaving you no choice? Do you sense that? Do you feel it? Summarized in so many different ways, this, this passage in verse 14 is echoed in other various ways in the New Testament. Think of Paul with Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's, that's the compelling love. This is very real. 
Very, very real. And then thirdly, there is a very real hound of heaven drawing you out. A very real, real hound of heaven drawing you out. Verse 14, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And verse 15 is really a commentary on verse 14. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him uh, who for their sake died and was raised. Verse 15 is just explaining verse 14. What are the implications? He died, he died for, uh, he died for people. Um, we have, in a sense, died in him. That means our old life, our old, uh, our old ways died in him. Now, what, is, what does this all mean? Look at verse 15. Well, the whole point is that we would no longer live self-promoting, self-centered, self-referential lives. And Paul says we would live for him. Look at that. You circle that if you have in your worship folder. Circle that in your Bible. We live for him who for their sight died and was raised. Let me bring you back to yet another look at the Adam. The Adam who brought us into this trouble and the Adam who was raised from the dead. This is what's being presented to us in our Bibles. There is one Adam who huddles his family in a cowering posture. Restless guilt rests on them all. It's a dark day. It never, the sun never really shines. They live under guilt and shame because the law is always over them, presenting to them as unrighteous. And they really aren't a family at all. They're preoccupied with themselves. They stay busy. They stay repressing the truth of God, the truth that's in them. They, they turn. They, they love speed. They love distraction. This family is restless, and they've been born into the family of the first Adam. The second Adam gathers his family around a joyous, joyous meal, which we will enjoy today. And he reminds his family every time they gather that everything has been left behind. He reminds them that the condemnation and the guilt are now over. And done. He reminds them that the age and time of misery is coming to an end. All the uncertainty they can put away from their hearts because they are sure of what he has done. And he convinces us that a new day has dawned, a dawn of rising, resurrected love. This family is increasingly freed from self-concerns and feeling that all their energy has to be spent on themselves. They now look at this atonement. They look at his rising from the dead. They see they've been taken care of, and their self-concern begins to dissipate. Of course, we don't get this down perfectly. Sweet, sweet gospel truths. The love of Christ controls us, and now we are called to not live for ourselves. So, brothers and sisters, this is, this is great stuff. I hope it is very real to you. And that it is becoming, Christ is becoming in you a compelling love. You see his atonement. You see his substitutionary death for you. And it moves you. 
relates to what you need. You're aware of the kind of Savior you need. Let's pray. Lord, you have chased us down. You are the hound of heaven. Father, you are moving in us that we would not be self-concerned and self-referential. Father, the self is a heavy burden to carry. Father, I ask that you would help us to, to believe that you really want us and that you came for us. We love you. We thank you for the life of the church, the work of the church, your faithfulness to life in the church, your faithfulness to bring Christ to your church, and that we could hear what it looks like for the compelling love of Christ to begin to move in a, in a person. Father, what a rich, rich passage. Cause it to spring to life in our hearts through the Spirit of God. We ask these things in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.